0: Hi everybody, welcome to our first lecture on Central Asia. Central Asia, I, one of the reasons I use the textbook that I, that uh, we're, we're using uh, for the course is the fact that uh, it actually breaks Central Asia out as a separate region. It's the only textbook that does so. Uh, most textbooks include uh, much Central Asia with Russia and, uh, and its neighbors and uh, the Tibetan part of the uh, of the, or actually the western part of China that's included in Central Asia in your textbook is usually uh, included with East Asia. And so I really like the fact that we break out Central Asia as its own uh, region, mainly because of its recent uh, uh, significance in in the world and uh, world geopolitics in particular. So, let's talk a little bit about the, uh, Central Asia and see what we have going on here, because I find it actually a quite fascinating place for a variety of different reasons. Uh, the physical geography is, is really kind of unique in a lot of ways, very high mountains uh, throughout much of the region. Uh, the world's uh, highest uh, plateau at 15,000 feet was the Tibetan Plateau. Um, The way, the livelihood of people is kind of interesting as well. Um, Many people are uh, pastoral nomadists and so forth. So let's take a look at Central Asia and see what we have going on. So um, here are learning objectives. uh, Obviously we're looking at Central Asia, which includes Mongolia, Afghanistan, and and six countries that were uh, part of the former Soviet Union, so to speak. Uh, Azerbaijan, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, and we're also including, as I mentioned, uh, the world's tallest mountains, the Himalayas, and we're also including um, the western part of China and particularly the Tibetan Plateau. Uh, you should understand at the end of the after after you listen and watch the lectures and read the chapter in the textbook, you should understand the significance of this region's landlocked location. The only region uh, that we'll be studying actually that um, it's landlocked. Uh, you should also understand the historical cohesion of this region, along with its pivotal role in the evolution of Eurasia as a whole. And you should also understand the effect of the of continent continentality and terrain on the climate patterns. Um, you should also, by the end of the. Uh, reading the chapter and listening to the lectures, you should also be familiar with the physical, demographic, cultural, political, and economic characteristics of the region. So as I said, you know one of the reasons that I uh, uh, enjoy studying this region is because it has really reemerged as a real world region and has become very important in geopolitics actually. Um, so as I said, you're going to be able to describe the environmental dilemmas of the region and there are some Uh, pretty interesting environmental problems in this region that we haven't really encountered in other parts of the world up to this time. We're also going to examine the ethnic complexity of this region and and the impact this has on political stability and uh, we're also going to uh, uh, hopefully understand by the end of the the chapter and the lectures the global connections of this region from an economic uh, that is uh, particularly oil and social perspective. And I kind of hinted at the oil um, phenomena when we were talking about Russia and its neighbors, uh, especially in the Caspian Basin. And we'll be taking a closer look at that in uh, this unit. So, here's some of the key concepts that uh, you should be looking for as you read through the chapter and as you listen to the lectures. Uh, the first is nomadic pastoralists, uh, transhumans, loess, alluvial fans. Exotic River, Exclave, Lamaism, Islamic Fundamentalism, Taliban, Theocracy, and the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Uh, so as I mentioned, this uh, this uh, region has reemerged uh, after the breakup of the Soviet Union. unified by history, environmental circumstances, and global geopolitics. Uh, five newly independent f- uh, countries of the former Soviet Union and pl- three additional controversial territories, uh, plus the autonomous regions of Western China. So. Uh, um, I think we'll start off by looking at the physical geography of the region. It's quite fascinating the physical geography of this region. Uh, It's very rugged, uh, it's very rugged terrain, high mountains, Uh, we have um, in many places we have a very dry climate, population density in the region is very low because of the very high terrain. Um, uh, And uh, as I mentioned oil is a very important natural resource. So let's uh, begin our look at the uh, and physical geography, the environmental geography. One of the things that you can notice from this map is, to the northern part of this region, we have uh, grasslands. Okay, just a general description. We have grasslands in the northern part, and to the and to the western part of this region as well. Uh, we have deserts in the southwest, particularly down in here, in this area, uh, Afghanistan, and so forth, or um, and in uh, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, and and in that area. And mountains in the south center and the southeast, as you can see here. South center in here. Okay. So and the Tibetan Plateau, of course, and then the Himalayas in the southeastern part of the region as well. So we have mountains in the south central part in here, as well as in the Himalayas here. Uh, The Central Asian Highlands uh, are actually formed by a collision of the Indian subcontinent into the Asian uh, mainland. The Himalaya Mountains are the highest mountains in the world. Uh, Many peaks, um, uh, we have peaks that reach uh, 29,000 feet above sea level. And uh, if you know your geography just a little bit, you would know the name of the mountain that reaches 29,000 feet above sea level. It's a mountain that people like to climb, but many people run into problems. Uh, while they're climbing it. And that would be, of course, Mount or, uh, the Himalaya, or, I'm sorry, Mount Everest, Mount Everest, okay, and the Himalayas. So these mountains are actually formed. You can see India right here. As the Indian subcontinent uh, broke off of what is Australia, uh, it's moved northward and it's collided into the uh, larger Eurasian landmass to form the Himalaya mountains. We also have the Karakuram range, uh, which is another very high mountain range and you can see that right in here. Many of the peaks in this uh, mountain range average, uh, where the mountain range itself averages about 28,000 feet above sea level at the maximum. And so you can see, uh, again, this has partially been formed by the collision of the Indian subcontinent into Eurasia. We also have the Pamir Mountains, the Hindu Kush Mountains, and the Shan as well as the Shan. So, uh, Here's the Hindu Kush here, here are the Pamir Mountains, okay, Uh, the Kunlun Shan, or here's the Tian Shan, and the Kunlun Shan in this area, right in here. Uh, An interesting place right here is the Pamir Knot, which is a complex triangle of east and west, east, west, and north-south trending ranges. The Pamir Knot forms the Asian Highland Core, peaks reach uh, Peaks reach up to about 24,584 feet above sea level. So, a very interesting place here where a lot of these different mountain ranges come together. Um, Other mountains in the area include the mountains in Turkmenistan and and the uh, Iranian border, okay, right in here. And also uh, in Azerbaijan uh, in southern Russia, right in here, in this area in here. Um, The Tibetan Plateau, as I've been talking about, is right in this area. Um, 1250 feet, I'm sorry, 1250 miles uh, from east to west. So uh, you can see this is a fairly large uh, territory or area of land. So 1250 miles east to west, um, 750 miles north to south, and uh, the entire area uh, exceeds 12,000 feet in elevation, uh, but it averages 15,000 feet in elevation. Much of the plateau is near maximum elevation for human life. So it's very difficult for uh, people to actually survive uh, at that elevation because of the lack of oxygen in that area. I've actually watched some uh, documentaries of people uh, bicycling, uh, since I'm a cyclist. Uh, bicycling across the Tibetan Plateau and I'll tell you they were really struggling because of the lack of oxygen in that area uh, and obviously the rugged terrain as well um, so um, and many of the higher elevations in Tibet actually have glaciers in them as do some of the other mountain ranges as well most of the rivers, most rivers originate in the Tibetan Plateau drain internally into salt lakes and marshes and we'll talk more about that uh, when we take a look at some of the rivers in the area. But you can see uh, so here's the Tibetan Plateau and you can see uh, many of these uh, rivers that uh, uh, well actually this is the Yangtze River this is the Mekong River. All these uh, flow uh, southward and are very important rivers for well, the Yangtze for China, uh, for example, the Mekong for Southeast Asia and so forth. So uh, this is the Ganges River over here that actually flows down into India and then Bangladesh, which we'll talk about the of that later, and then the Indus River which flows down through Pakistan, as you can see here. All these rivers actually have their source up in this area that we'll be talking about. But you can see many of the other rivers flow uh, inland and into some of these uh, uh, lakes and so forth. So here we have, uh, you can see this river here flows into Lake uh, uh, Bakash. Uh, this is the Sur Darya River uh, that flows into the Aral Sea. Uh, we also have the Amu Daria River that flows into the Aral Sea. And so these are, are uh, kind of important rivers for this region. We'll talk, like I said, we'll talk a bit more about those rivers in a few minutes. So the important rivers that uh, that actually begin here and flow into other parts of the, of, of the world or uh, either East Asia or Southeast Asia or South Asia would be the Indus River that I pointed out, the Ganges, the Brahmaputra, the Salween, uh, the Mekong, the Yangtze and the He. Most of Tibet is pretty arid um, cold winters, warm summers with chilly nights southeast section of the region does receive some rainfall here. Okay, so now let's take a look at some of the plains and uh, basins in this region as well. So we have deserts uh, west of the Tian Shan Mountains, and here are the, here's the Tian Shan Mountains, and you can see we have some desert uh, areas in here. Okay, um, and also deserts west of the Pamir Knot. So here's the Pamir Knot, and so our desert areas would be uh, in this area as well. Uh, two deserts that I want to point out are the Karakum Desert. Uh, the Karakum Desert is um, right here, as you can see. Okay, And it's unique because the sand is black in the Karakum Desert. And then we have the Kyzylkum Desert, which is right here. And it's unique because much of the sand is red. Um, and we saw red sand before, if you remember, when we saw the uh, Kalahari Desert. Uh, also has, in Africa also has red sand. Uh, very little vegetation, uh, relatively flat, and as you can tell from the elevation map, these are actually pretty low um, in elevation as well. Uh, so, um, as I, I pointed out, the Darya and the Amidaria River uh, earlier, and uh, they're significant because they do flow into uh, the Aral Sea. Okay, and provide water for the Aral Sea. And the Aral Sea is just 135 feet above sea level. The Caspian Sea, on the other hand, to give you an uh, uh, indication of the uh, elevation of some of these areas, is actually below sea level. Uh, the Caspian Sea lies at about 92 feet below sea level. Much of this region has a continental climate. The summers are dry and hot. Winters average well below freezing temperatures. Are more moderate along the Caspian Sea as you might expect because it receives the moderating influence uh, from the water in the Caspian Sea. Um, the eastern contiguous deserts extend for about two thousand miles. The Taklamakan and the Gobi Desert. Okay, so this is the Taklamakan Desert here, as you can see, and then we had the Gobi Desert here as well. Okay? so uh, two very two very large deserts. Uh, in the eastern part of this region. They're extremely barren uh, uh, and uh, the Takama Khan is actually interesting when we look at the population geography. You'll see much of the population uh, actually lives along the uh, ridges of the mountains here, or the lower elevations of the mountains here. Uh, and I'll explain why that's the uh, why uh, in, a, in a few minutes. Um, the climate uh, for the eastern deserts, more s- uh, snow on the western slopes of the Pamir Mountains than, the, uh, than on the eastern slopes. And rainfall increases towards the north. Uh, desert becomes steppe, as you can see. So we move from our desert areas into our steppe areas. In a similar situation here, as you can see, we move from our low-lying desert areas into our steppe area. So rainfall does increase as we move a little bit further northward here. Now let's talk. Uh, now I wanted to talk about some of the environmental issues in the region as well, um, as you can see from this map. And what I really wanted to point out here was, I've been mentioning these two rivers, the Syr Darya and the Amu Darya, that flow into the Aral Sea, uh, and they're important because what's happening here is the Aral Sea is actually shrinking, uh, and the reason that it's shrinking is because these rivers have been dammed. And these rivers have been dammed to uh, enable farmers to do agriculture. And the crop that they grow, they don't grow crops for food. They grow cotton in this area. Okay, And that cotton obviously is turned into clothing and things like that. Uh, So it's kind of interesting, and when they dammed these rivers, I guess nobody really thought about the fact that, well, if we don't have water flowing into the Aral Sea, then it might just dry up, and that's exactly what's happening. And I have some images of the Aral Sea coming up in a few minutes, so we'll take a look at that. Uh, other problems in the, in the region, uh, I'm sorry, uh, we'll get to the other problems in the region. This process of the lakes drying up is called uh, desiccation. Now, You see I just referred to these as lakes, and on the map they're called seas. So we have the Aral Sea and the Caspian Sea. Uh, there actually aren't true seas they're actually lakes uh, to be a true sea they would have to be connected to an ocean and obviously these are not the uh, size of an ocean so um, so we call that desiccation the drying up of lakes and wetlands and that's exactly what's occurring here and it was also occurring in the Caspian for a while uh, because they also uh, started to uh, to uh, dam uh, these uh, dams, some of the rivers that flew, flowed into the Caspian, you can actually see there's a little bit of uh, lake desiccation in this area. So, um, But that seems to have been uh, uh, remedied uh, in the Caspian, it doesn't seem to be shrinking anymore. Um, I think they are allowing more water to actually flow through the dams and, and feed this, feed into the sea. So the Caspian Sea is the world's largest lake, as you can see right here. Uh, as I mentioned, it's not a true sea. It's about the size of Montana. If you've ever been to Montana, you know Montana is pretty darn big. Especially if you've ever tried to drive across it. It's pretty big to drive across. Uh, water from the Ural and Volga rivers uh, feed this dam. And as I mentioned uh, when we were talking about the, uh, um, Russia and its neighbors, uh, they have built some dams along the Volga and uh, the Ural River, Ural River as well that uh, decrease the flow. Dams, uh, irrigation divert water from the Caspian uh, but like I said, they're beginning to allow um, more water to flow uh, so that the Caspian doesn't dry up like the Aral does Now another problem that the Caspian Sea has, as you can see, is this oil pollution If you remember when I was talking about Russia and its neighbors I mentioned that there's huge oil reserves under the, in the Caspian Basin and particularly under the Caspian Sea and obviously to get to that you have to build oil platforms out into the sea and drill in uh... to get that oil and so there's been a lot of oil pollution and you can see around Baku it's particularly bad because that's the processing center that's where a lot of the oil uh... pipelines come uh, to have the oil then uh... well a lot of the oil pipelines uh, begin in Baku uh... that come in off of the uh off the platform and we have some leakage and things like that as well as up in the northern part, uh, leakage from the platforms uh, the oil platforms, much like we saw in the Gulf of Mexico a few years ago and quite frankly uh, probably still continues in the Gulf of Mexico if we would know the truth. Uh, The Aral Sea is the world's fourth largest lake obviously it's not connected, it's not a true sea either it was, and I put that in quotes, was the size of of West Virginia. As I mentioned, water from the Amu Dari and the rivers have been dammed for irrigation um, to divert water. 60%, at least 60% of the Aral Sea's original volume is gone. And you can see uh, from this map uh, that uh, we have a real problem with desiccation in this area. So what are some of the effects of desiccation? Um, the fishing industry has been uh, destroyed. Um, it also results in a, de- believe it or not, it results in a decline of precipitation, because as the weather systems pass over the Aral Sea, there's less water for it to for them to uh, pick up and then drop its precipitation as it uh, continues to move uh, eastward. Um, and uh, let's see, what else do we have going on here? Oh, we have uh, desertification uh, that's occurring in the region as well. Um, Uh, Desertification, as you know, is the spread of deserts. The Gobi Desert is spreading southward into China okay into this area here as you can see and um, uh, soil erosion in northern Kazakhstan is also a problem up in this area uh... remember we talked about the virgin and idle lands campaign and uh... when we talked about the former Soviet Union Uh, and uh... You can see it uh, resulted in the cultivation of steppe lands, and it's leading to pronounced soil erosion in this, way, so in this area. So uh, they haven't re- really taken uh, good care of the land to prevent that erosion. I mean, there's certainly farming pro- um, farming procedures that you can use to limit erosion, uh, but obviously during the Soviet era, they didn't really, they weren't really too concerned with that. So, those are some of the environmental issues. And so, I've already mentioned some of these uh, things, so I'm not really going to repeat them again. I thought, uh, to me, it's a lot easier to understand some of these things by looking at a map uh, to uh, point them out to you. So, this is the Aral Sea, and you can see it's, uh, you can see the land surface that's uh, appearing within the water and so forth. And uh, this is the really the case this is the northern part of the Aral Sea. So, we have shrinking uh, lakes. Uh, resource extraction and water projects uh, are causing uh, problems The resource extraction with oil the water projects are causing problems with things like salinization as well so a lot of the land that's been used for irrigation uh, and I'll just go back to this map uh, again so the ceridaria and amudaria from being uh... uh, from being dammed a lot of that water is used for irrigation to grow cotton as I mentioned well, that's also contributing to salinization of the land in this area as well. Uh, and so it's becoming uh, less and less productive over time. So I think that's also important for us to understand. Uh, Desertification, we talked about. Deforestation isn't too much of a problem in this area, mainly because the population density is relatively low. and it, To to do um, deforestation, I mean, it is certainly a problem in some places where there are cutting down trees to do some agriculture, and then we have continued erosion. But, uh, because of the location of this area to global markets, it would be really difficult to exploit the lumber uh, to sell on global markets. So, deforestation, while it might be a a problem, is not a huge problem in this area. So, here's some uh, uh, other images of the uh, Aral Sea, as you can see. So, this is what the Aral Sea used to look like. And this is what it looks like now. So, um, not very good. Not very good. And as you can see, there's been a 90% reduction since the 1960s. As I mentioned, it's caused economic damage, particularly with the uh, fishing industry. You know, people used to have boats along the shore here, you know, to, uh, to fish and things like that. Well, now, you know, if your, if your boat was over here, right, it's a long way to get to the water to do any fishing now. So, uh, so obviously, economic damage, and, I, and as I mentioned, the environmental destruction with the salinization and other problems uh, that this is creating. Uh, here's some of the physical landscapes that we already talked about. Central Asian highlands. Uh, we have the Himalayas and the Tibetan Plateau. This was, is the Tibetan Plateau. And then you can see uh, plains and basins that we've already talked about, the desert and some of the rivers that we've mentioned in the region and have their origins in the region. Here's our climate map of the region that we've already talked about. So as you can see in the, uh, these will be our desert areas Uh, for the most part the BSK is uh, or BWK, I'm sorry, the BWK is our mid-latitude deserts and you can see they're pretty extensive. Okay, so this would be the Kizilkum and Karakum deserts that we mentioned earlier. Uh, this would be the uh, the uh, Taklamakan Desert and the Gobi Desert in here, as you can see. Then we have our step place, uh, step uh, areas that we talked about, which are uh, P. I'm sorry, BSK. Can't speak today. BSK uh, climates. Okay, in the northern part of the region, as we mentioned. And then our B-I- we have some BSK over here as well, in the eastern part of the region as well, as it's back over here in the southwestern part. Of the area, and then we have the uh, the highland climates or mountain climates, if you wish, uh, which uh, very complex. Uh, in many cases, um, you know, you have uh, local climates that uh, are very. I mean, you could go a few miles and the climate conditions would be very different based upon if you're in a, in a valley or up on top of a mountain, or climbing up a mountain, it just depends. So very localized climates in some cases in the highland areas. But for the most part uh, with the elevations that we have here, uh, cold year-round with snow and glaciers and things like that. Um, let's see what else do we have anything else here? And then in the very, very Uh, eastern part of the region, the very northern part of the region, we have some of our mid-latitude or continental mid-latitude climates as well. And then you can see this very, very small area of a monsoon climate uh, as uh, we it does get some moisture off of the uh, from the monsoons that come in off the uh, Bay of Bengal down in this area. Okay, so that's our climates. So let's uh, take a look at our population and settlement patterns in the region. So this area is really very sparsely populated, as you can see from the map. There are some uh, localized areas of dense population, but for the most part, as uh, the region overall is very sparsely populated. And yeah, that's pretty easy to understand because, first of all, the desert areas, uh, the widespread desert areas, and then also the very high, uh, the highlands as well. It's very difficult for people to live in those highland areas. Uh, and so forth. So uh, most people will live in the valley areas uh, where they can uh, uh, use rivers for uh, irrigation and things like that. So let's talk a little little bit about our highland populations and some of their subsistence patterns. So as I've been alluding to, the highland climates have a very harsh environment. Most of the Tibetan Plateau supports only nomadic pastoralism, uh, and I wonder if you know what kind of animals that are dominant on the Tibetan Plateau as far as the pastoral nomads and what they use well if you haven't guessed it's the yak okay and hopefully you've heard of the yak before it's an altitude adapted relative of the cow okay and that's what they use on the Tibetan Plateau okay Um, so uh, you know, uh, there might be a few places in some of the valley areas down in this region where you might find some uh, agriculture. You can tell it's a little dense more densely populated here around Lhasa, which is the capital of Tibet, and down in these areas. So you might find some uh, sedentary agriculture farms and so forth down in this area. But for the most part, most people will pa- uh, practice pastoral nomadism. Uh, the Kyrgyz people in Kyrgyzstan uh, practice transhumance. That's m- moving their flocks from lowland pastures in the winter time to highland meadows in the summer. So in the winter, uh, I'm sorry, in the winter time, uh, obviously it's very cold, snow and so forth in the highland areas. So you move down, uh, so you move your uh, your flocks down to the lowland pastures, and then uh, in the uh, in the summertime, uh, you move uh, your your uh, your cattle and so forth uh, in up and in, up into the higher elevations where the meadows uh, are now uh, after the snow has melted and the, and the meadows are available uh, the mountains are also important for lowland dwellers and the mountains are important because many of the rivers flow out of the uh, or yes many of the rivers flow out of the mountains Sedentary farming is possible in a very few locations, uh, relatively low elevation areas with good soils and water. Uh, nonetheless, most Tibetans are uh, um, nonetheless, most Tibetans are uh, uh, do practice transhumans and like I said, some are sedentary farmers as well. Concentrations of farmers, as I pointed out, down here in the southeastern part of the region. Tibet has a population of about two and a half million people. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about some of the problems in Tibet um, as far as the migration patterns and so forth uh, when we talk about the geopolitics of the region. Now let's move on and look at some of the lowland populations in some of the other regions. Uh, most des- desert dwellers live where the mountains and the, and the I'm sorry, where the mountains meet the basins and the plains. And the reason for this is because of the sufficient water supplies soils are okay and there's really uh, no salt uh, in the soils at, or no um, alkali in the, in the soils like you would find in the true desert areas um, and the reason for that is because with the rivers flowing off, of the, uh, off the mountains uh, they, uh, they create what's known as alluvial fans alluvial fans are fan shaped deposits of sediments uh, deposited by streams flowing out of the mountains and we'll see those located in the Pamirs, uh, and these are usually areas of intensely cultivated, uh, these areas are usually intensely cultivated by the farmers. Uh, specific regions uh, include the Ferga- Farragona Valley, of uh, the Syr Darya River, and the Kura River Basin in Azerbaijan. Um, then we also have the uh, Gobi Desert, there's little permanent water no exotic rivers from elsewhere. It's one of uh, one of Asia's least populated areas, and then we also have the uh, Northern Kazakhstan up in here. As you can see, the capital is Astana. Uh, is a major producer of spring wheat. Uh, so spring wheat is uh, sown in the spring and then it's harvested in the fall. Uh, it's ha- has the highest population. It's the highest population density of the steppe area up in here, as you can see. So um, let me take a look at the uh, next slide here. So this is the highland tra- population, transhumans. Remember, that's moving uh, your animals from the lowlands to the highlands in the summertime, and then from back down to the lowlands in the wintertime. Uh, we've also talked a bit about the lowland population. Uh, this is the uh, Tarim Basin uh, in the Taklamakan Desert. And one of the things that you can see is we have our population concentrated around this area. Now remember, we have our rivers flowing out of the mountains, and when they hit the hit the relatively flat lowlands, they tend to flood those, flood those areas at certain times of the year, and they deposit very rich soils. Uh, and those soils are very good for doing agriculture, and that's why you see the population concentrated around the edges of the of the desert and the uh, actually the lower I guess the lower levels of the mountains the foothills of the, of the mountains and so forth in this area okay so we talked about uh, subsistence agriculture we talked about the alluvial fans I just mentioned those again uh, intensive uh, cultivation and here you can see this is in Uzbekistan and they're growing cotton here this is what they're harvesting here and then in Mongolia we're herding our animals as you can see. And these are probably nomads. It uh, looks like in this image that we have probably some tents back in here uh, where people uh, live and so they're probably moving their animals from uh, across the uh, across the steppe area. Uh, lowest plateaus, or I'm sorry, lowest deposits also create uh, very fertile soils. And lowest is actually uh, it's pretty interesting. It's wind deposited soil. So in some areas, um, and where this is really important is, we'll talk about this in China, in a place called the Lowest Plateau. Uh, but there's also some areas in, in this region, particularly in the western the western part of China, uh, where lowest deposits also um, occur. And those are usually very uh, fertile soils. And as you can see, we have our nomadic pastoralism also in the steppe areas as well. Uh, let's talk about the migration flows uh, because these are pretty interesting Um, There's, uh, and I I guess I'll talk a little bit about some of the problems with migration from China at this point Um, I was going to wait and talk about it when we talk about the geopolitics but we may as well uh, talk about it now a little bit and then we'll talk about it later so one of the things that you can see is that we have migration from kind of the I don't know if we could call this uh, you know, the central part of China, so to speak, well, it certainly is the central part because it's in the middle of where this arrow is pointing from, um, to places like Tibet, and to places like Qinghai, and to places like uh, Xinjiang, and to places like Inner mongolia And there's a real reason for this. Uh, this is uh, uh, migration that's actually encouraged by the Chinese government. Uh, much like the Russians encourage migration out of Russia to the the, the uh, surrounding republics in an effort to russify those republics the Chinese uh, government is also trying to encourage the Han Chinese the, which is the dominant uh, ethnic group in China to move into these areas to try to and I'll use the term Han eyes I've never seen that term but that to me if we're uh, you know for russifying or uh, we, we're also I guess honifying or Hanizing uh, these areas by moving uh, Han Chinese and really what they're trying to do is they're trying to dilute the culture in these places so uh, Tibetan we have Lama Buddhism um, and we'll talk a little bit about the uh, uh, you know many of the Buddhists fled this region um, the Dalai Lama fled this region and so forth uh, and, and some of these other areas would have uh, Muslim populations as well okay um, especially in Zhejiang province. Okay. So it's really an effort to dilute those uh, different um, cultures and, and ethnic groups uh, by bringing Han Chinese into the area. Um, and of course there's a lot of... Um, people don't like that. <laughs> the, uh, obviously the Tibetans don't like it, and the uh, Muslims that live in this area don't like it, uh, and every now and then you'll hear of an uprising. But we'll talk more about some of those things when we talk about the uh, geopolitics in the region. Um, So this has really been a major source of population growth for these areas over about the last 30 years or so. Ethnic Russians, as you can see, are leaving these areas much like we talked about before. The former Central Asian republics of the Soviet Union and going back into uh, Russia for the most part. Overall birth rates in the region are near the middle for a developing country and obviously they're going to be higher in the rural areas like we would find in most regions of the world and they're also lower in uh, lower in the urban areas. Afghanistan has the region's highest birth rates and uh, uh, we'll take a look at the chart coming up in a few minutes so let's see if there's anything else we want to take a look at here uh, we should take a look at the afghanistan and the migration here and obviously these are largely going to be refugees fleeing from first of all the russian um, invasion in nineteen seventy nine and then most recently the u.s. invasion of afghanistan in two thousand three two thousand one two thousand three well, whenever that was. Uh, and uh, yes, yeah. so uh, Afghan refugees to Iran and Pakistan, uh, as you can see. Okay. And many of these people, we'll take a closer look at some of these refugees as well when we uh, look at Pakistan, because that's obviously created some problems for Pakistan. And then we have uh, Russians leaving Uzbekistan, uh, moving into Kazakhstan and Tajikistan. Kurdistan and so forth. There's been some political problems, particularly in Tajikistan, uh, uh, particularly in Tajikistan and Uzbekistan, that is causing people to leave those areas. Okay, so let's move along here and let's look at uh, urbanization. Uh, urbanization rates in this region are actually fairly low, as you can see. Uh, Afghanistan only has 22 percent of its population living in cities. Uh, Azerbaijan 54. Uh, and Kazakhstan 54, Kyrgyzstan about 35 percent, Mongolia about 61 percent, and then Tajikistan 26 and so forth. And you can see uh, relatively um, low percentages of people living in cities. And then you can see our populations are, are you know, fairly small for such a large area and that's certainly indicated by the population densities 45 people per square mile, uh, 27 53, 11, and so forth. Rates of natural increase, okay, as you can see, are, uh, like I said, probably in about the middle of what we would find for a developing region. They're not extraordinarily high, and they're obviously not not low either. And then, but our total fertility rates, you can see Afghanistan, obviously 5.7 has the highest total fertility rate, in the region, and again, that's largely because of uh, high infant mortality rates there as well. Okay, uh, relatively young population, as you can see, um, but uh, not many old people. Okay, so relatively small proportion of the population is greater than 65. And then finally, you can see uh, the net migration rate. Now, this uh, data here is indicating that. Uh, Afghanistan has a positive net migration rate, which indicates that more people are moving into Afghanistan than leaving. And that's probably certainly true in the latter part of this uh, time period uh, as refugees uh, flow back into Afghanistan uh, after the, well, somewhat seemingly uh, end of the Afghan or the U.S. invasion of, the, of Afghanistan. But you can see other people are leaving many of these other countries so Azerbaijan, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Mongolia, Tajikistan and so forth all have negative uh... net migration rates which indicate people are leaving those regions so looking at the uh, again looking at continuing to take a look at uh, the urbanization uh... we have some older cities and these are cities are actually pretty interesting because these older cities such as uh... Samarkand and uh, Bukhara um, as you can see from these images have very interesting architecture right very interesting architecture very uh, lavish architecture beautiful because these cities actually used to be very very wealthy cities uh, because they were located on the Silk Road the Great Silk Road that uh, went from uh, uh, went from Europe uh, pretty much the whole way to China And and so you know, before uh, uh, trade occurred by ship, Uh, it occurred overland, of course, and uh, the Silk Road was the main route between uh, the west and the east, and so you can, uh, you know, very wealthy merchants lived in some of these cities and they invested the money in the architecture and so forth. Uh, Then, of course, unfortunately for this region, the evolution of sea trade routes by, bypass this cities uh, this region cities and they certainly lost their significance um, when the Russians uh, came in and uh, uh, controlled uh, its Central Asian Republics that uh, they uh, created new cities in the region as did the Chinese when it came uh, came into places like Tibet and uh, Zhejiang province and Quanghai province in the western part of China. They established some new cities there as administrative centers, as uh, uh, places to, uh, for troops to uh, be stationed. And um, these were very often near uh, uh, cities that already existed in the region, uh, or indigenous cities, if you prefer. So the Chinese created what we sometimes refer to as a dualistic urban framework, or twin cities. Uh, the cities, so that's the indigenous and then the new city side by side. Um, As I mentioned before, Kazakhstan has actually created a new capital, in uh, Astana, and this uh, region, uh, as I pointed out in the data, remains largely um, rural by any stretch of the imagination. Okay, so that's where we're going to stop for this first lecture on Central Asia. When we come back, we'll probably finish up the region uh, by looking at the cultural, um, geopolitical, the cultural geography, the geopolitical situation in the region, as well as the economic geography. So I hope you're enjoying uh, this discussion of Central Asia so far. As I said, I find it to be a very, very interesting place.